we started working more and more with Indigenous educators who found the pedagogy really useful, but also said, you know, you could take this so much further. But we're challenging educators to think, how do you bring reciprocity to that? He said, you have to figure out how to take small steps out of that paralysis. Because if you don't, it becomes a cop-out. Yeah. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... How do you think about creating a relationship with that tree? So how does your school, how do your students, how does the community, so that as we move into the future, we have to do less of that because we've formed a relationship with it and we understand the importance of it so that we have to ask ourselves less about how we protect the earth in the future versus how we actually give back to all. Think about your special tree. Everyone has a special tree. Trees inspire us like few other life forms. They represent growth, renewal, and connectivity to the land. On the front cover of Natural Curiosity 2nd Edition, a tree sprouts from the back of a turtle, Turtle Island. The book is based around a four-branch framework for children's environmental inquiry with each branch explored through an indigenous lens. Hayley Higdon is the program director of Natural Curiosity, and she was the managing editor of the second edition of the book. Hayley joined Ian to discuss environmental inquiry, partnering with indigenous communities, and how indigenous and non-indigenous people can collaborate on a path towards reconciliation. So if you think back to childhood, were there any instances when you learned through environmental inquiry without knowing that it was quote unquote environmental inquiry, sort of by a different name? Honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind is my experience of going to camp as a child. Unfortunately, my school career, um, you know, experiences from that weren't the first thing that popped into my mind when, when you asked me that question. Because those experiences of summer camp were, you know, being a kid that was raised in downtown Toronto, um, you know, some of those were day camps in High Park, uh, mm -hmm. where we got to run around and explore and build forts. And then, you know, was also privileged and lucky enough to have an overnight camp experience where you um, were immersed um, in nature for an entire week and in community and, Yeah, when you ask about the sort of engaging in environmental inquiry without kind of knowing it, that experience of significant time in a summer camp context is where I really, what comes to mind for me as a, as a child and, and being allowed to have that experience was so powerful. 
are there any specific moments that really come to mind, like a, a specific day, a snapshot in time? Well, there's definitely some good learning. I learned very young that I am highly allergic to poison ivy. Oh, me too. <laughs> yes. So uh, my mom tells the story of picking me up at the end of the a week of summer camp and I was just covered in poison ivy. So, you know, I learned really early about risk assessment right? And figuring out I still wanted to be out there in nature. But I because I'm so allergic to it, you know, I had to make sure that I was always wearing high socks and always, you know, washing my hands and, and making sure the clothes that that were on that hike were put in a plastic bag and dealt with late, like I, I had to learn to assess risk, which is, is an integral part of having experiences outside. And that was really valuable. <laughs> and I think the experience of, I remember being able with, a, you know, a group of peers just wandering around. I think we were playing a camp wide game of, can't remember if it was capture the flag or something, but just this freedom right. of not being supervised continually by adults and being able to run and explore through the woods um, and being trusted to do so, right? And being trusted to, you know, being able to have those experiences, but find our way back. And that was super powerful me for me as a child and also I think supported forming a relationship with the natural world and one of the reasons you know why I came to want to protect it as I grew into an adult right that yeah. having those experiences are so integral for students if we want to later on or even as young children ask them to begin to think about how they go about protecting the natural world. In educational context today, who and or where is a lot of this type of learning happening? Learning where children are at the center and they're leading from their questions and their theories. I mean, who's, you could almost say, who has already embraced the shift? I think there are a lot of educators out there doing this. And I think, you know, they might not be calling it inquiry, right? right. Like this is some, where semantics come in, especially within education, right? So I think there are plenty of teachers that start the year by creating a community where students' perspectives, where students' ideas, where students' questions are valued. And so I think that is happening in many different contexts within education. And, and we have to honor that, that this is, this is not something new. Teachers have been doing this for a long time. So, you know, that is something that we need to recognize and acknowledge. Yeah. I mean, when I think of my experience in my supply teaching days, and you know what it's like supply teaching, you're jumping around to many different types of classes. And I was supply teaching in the public system. And the classes where there was the most engagement and also the classes that fit the most with the pedagogical framework outlined in natural curiosity were the tech classes, the auto shop classes. Mm -hmm. It was a community of learners. The students were leading with their questions and their theories. They were trying new things. There was also so much more confidence. Like they 
created a system. It created a workplace in and of itself. And I actually, I'm not certified to teach those topics, but I always enjoyed, you know, having to cover those classes as a supply teacher because I'm like, yeah, this is where it's happening. And then yeah, I would go I to you. some of the more like quote unquote traditional classes, <laughs> including an indigenous studies class. And they were sitting in rows and the teacher was like, here's the lesson plan and you're supposed to write stuff on the board. And I was just like, oh, goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I, I supply teach as well still today with the TDSB. And unfortunately, I supply teach in the elementary grades. So there isn't necessarily a tech class. Right. Um, not making cars. <laughs> no, no. But yeah, those opportunities for engaging in deep experiential learning. Um, yeah, provide opportunities for what you shared. But I think part of the problem with the sort of conventional classroom in embracing a shift is this isn't necessarily a way that a lot of us were taught. Not at all. So thinking about incorporating how, you know, thinking about how we do this can be difficult. And so learning from those opportunities like the tech class where students are are highly engaged or it's in a project-based, you know, orientation or people are working with real and authentic problems in the community, we see really deep student engagement in the learning. And a lot of teachers that we work with see how that's possible when talking about the science curriculum or social studies curriculum, which I think is a great place to start, right? If teachers are just beginning to think about how to incorporate environmental inquiry, yeah, starting with a unit of science and thinking about, okay, what are the overarching goals of this curriculum that I'm hoping my students will understand by the end of the inquiry. And then once you have that in mind, you know, you're bringing in what students are interested about that, you know, how, what, what they're engaged with or the questions they have or the wonders that they have or the misconceptions that you have, they have, and you have too, right? Acknowledging that you're still learning in this process, you know, that allowing that to sort of flow naturally is going to be so much more engaging for students. And I'm going to argue also for uh, being an educator, right? It's going to probably make the learning more exciting for you too. Well, for sure. I mean, I can look at an experience I had in an environmental science class. And rather than just teaching the textbook, so to speak, the main teacher for this class did a lot of work on what the students really wanted to know about climate change. Climate change is the elephant in the room. And for people who are going to be living through many of the effects of climate change, we're already living many of them, what do they want to know? And one of the first questions is, is there any point in doing something? And that's a totally legitimate question, of course. And the answer is yes. And what moves downstream very quickly from that is we need to focus on solutions. And obviously we're doing this joint professional development workshop series in the fall where we're going to be looking at climate solutions through Natural Curiosity's four-branch framework. And that is one of the big initial questions that we'll look at. Is there any point? Well, yes, there is. What can we do? And then, of course, how can we make it local and relevant? I remember a student sort of asking me in relation to that conversation, sort of like, well, can we still have fun? Mm-hmm. It was such an interesting question. Like he sort of felt like the solutions had to be all about restricting what we can do. So, you know, you can no longer take that trip that you wanted to do. So it was just an yeah. interesting perspective. There's sort of bringing that into the conversation and, and honoring 
that those are important questions as we move forward in this learning. Yeah, and that's such a great point, how it doesn't have to be all about what you can't do. So much of it is like, all right, here's a creative challenge, now go. And there's, of course, so much wonderful stuff happening, and you can get students researching about innovations that are happening, and, and then get them to think about their own innovations. Turn it into a competition, potentially. There's so much possibility there, but we could talk for hours and hours about that, which we will be doing this fall. Yeah. And I think that connects that what sparked for me right there, natural curiosity talks a lot about collaborative and group knowledge building. Yes. And one of the core tenets of that or the core ideas of that is this idea that all ideas are improvable, right? So within that conversation that you just had, if students feel that and understand that, then they can pose solutions and feel like that they, they can be real contributors to these huge challenges that we are facing when you come forward with this stance, that all ideas are improvable and their voices can contribute to the growth of understanding. It's motivating. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a nonprofit that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. For only $32 a year, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. The sun rises in the east and shines first on the top of your special tree. The golden light slowly spreads downward towards the base of the trunk. The second edition of Natural Curiosity was published in 2017 and it's focused on the importance of indigenous perspectives. But let's first talk about the first edition. It came out in 2011 and it was based on a lot of the work from the lab school. Tell us a bit about the lab school. Mm-hmm. So the Dr. Eric Jackman Institute of Child Study Labor- Laboratory School, Boise U of T, and those are acronyms. <laughs> we joke, it's a very long name. It so, is. Yes, it is an independent school that has children from nursery to grade six. And it is a lab school that he's, has been around since the 1920s that was based on a laboratory school that was started by John Dewey, who sort of said, uh, I was an education philosopher and said, you know, all these other professions have places where they do res- research that informs practice or that informs the field. So we should be doing something similar for education. So we should have places um, where we're researching best practice, how students best learn and how we can best support the success of all students within our schools. And so the laboratory school in Toronto started, as I mentioned, in the 1920s and has been using an inquiry approach to learning since then and has worked with researchers at the University of Toronto and at OISE to look at that question, how do students best learn? And it's a really neat space because there are the teachers who we actually call teacher researchers. 
So they're often doing their own research in working with the children, but often they collaborate with professors at the university on these questions that we have about supporting students. And um, the other neat component about the Dr. Eric Jackman Institute of Child Study is there is the school with teacher researchers, but there is also a master's and BED program. So there are pre-service teachers that are learning within the institute and are being taught often by the professors that are doing research with teachers at the school. So there's this kind of triangular model where um, everyone is continually learning together. So it's a really neat place to be in terms of education. And there is this constant, I want to say, focus on continual learning, right? Educators that have been teaching for 30 years are still questioning their practice, are still learning from others' teachers, or are still thinking, oh, how could I do that better? And that's what I so appreciate about being a part of that community. And the first edition stemmed from a lot of the work and the findings from that school. Now, what's really interesting, and I know this is something you talk about a lot in presentations, and it's mentioned in the second edition book, is that in the first edition, Indigenous perspectives were essentially only addressed in one paragraph. What sparked the shift between the first edition and the second edition to really expand beyond that and embed or braid the Indigenous perspectives with the four branches that are outlined in both editions? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So the first edition was a reaction to a ministry document in Ontario, the province of Ontario, Acting Today, Shaping Tomorrow, which encourages all educators to be incorporating environmental education throughout all of the curriculum. And so this, the first edition was supporting educators in thinking how an environmental inquiry approach can support that objective. Um, And it had a a four-branch framework of inquiry-based learning, experiential learning, integrated learning, and stewardship. And as you mentioned, we had one paragraph that says linking to Aboriginal perspectives. And that's between 2009 and 11, when the book was published, that's where we were in our understanding as a school and as a learning community. And we're honest in that. Sure. We're honest in that's that's all about all we knew at that point. And then as we put that book into the world and we had many educators appreciate the resource and begin to use it in their practice, um, we started working more and more with Indigenous educators who found the pedagogy really useful, but also said, you know, you could take this so much further. So this is an incredible starting spot or starting place, but we could, yeah, the resource could be, yeah, so much deeper in terms of how it brings forward the importance of Indigenous perspectives and how that could support the pedagogy that was already included in the first edition. And so when we talk about what supported us in our shift in thinking or in our learning and unlearning, Um, It was relationship. So Mm -hmm. we had relationship with, well, actually the story, because this is actually before I started uh, with Natural Curiosity, but two educators came to an inquiry institute in Toronto. They're from the Thunder Bay area. And 
actually they work with Aroland First Nation and Johnny Terrio School on Aroland First Nation. And they, they said just what I said. They said, okay, this is incredible, but um, let's think about how to do it different. So they invited us to visit their school in Fort Francis. And so we went and presented about inquiry to their staff. And we just happened to be there while well, they invited us to be there for their fall harvest. Yeah. So we learned from their teachers, we learned from their children, we learned from their local elders and community members about what the fall harvest means to their community and how those experiences and activities, um, hands-on experiences, enrich the learning of their children. And um, they also invite local community, other schools in the area to come and experience that. So seeing that the benefit of for, for other children as well. Um, so we always like to say Chimi Gwech to Airland First Nation and Johnny Terrio for supporting us. And then we also had a relationship with Rainy River District School Board and Seven Generations Educational Institute in Fort Francis, Ontario, um, who, yeah, we had a similar experience. It said this resource could be so much better and do a better job of incorporating Indigenous perspectives. And so we, we listened and we began to move forward with thinking about how that was possible. And that all came together, of course, with the second edition. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. The light has now spread onto the few roots that protrude from the ground. Hints of the life-sustaining network below your feet. You were the managing editor for that second edition. What were your biggest priorities? So I started the role with Natural Curiosity. And then a couple months later, yeah, I sort of became the managing editor for this. It was sort of unexpected, was thrown in it a little bit, um, <laughs> right. which is, was incredible learning and unlearning for me as an educator, but also as a settler and as a Canadian. And we already had an Indigenous advisory board put together to support the creation of this resource. So that was actually created before I came on, but that was really integral to the process of creating this resource, um, especially as a settler organization. And so that, that was one thing that remained important to me to make sure that our resource was supported by our Indigenous Advisory Board as we worked in the creation of that. Another important thing for me, and I think some people may notice, but the first edition the educator's stories were actually written by Lorraine, who was the author of the entire resource. Right. Um, in the second edition, I wanted to honor storytelling. I wanted to honor that educators should be the ones writing their own stories. And so that was something that was really important to me. Um, and so obviously they were edited by uh, myself and um, some other really incredible editors. Right. But... They're at, they were the ones that actually contributed their story, which probably took a little bit longer, but I think it was so important because sharing our, our own stories is an integral part of embracing the shift. Looking at the, the branches, so it's, it's four branches and they're presented more so as 
a sequential list in the first edition. And the structure of just how they're arranged is different. It's very different in the second edition. What was behind that? Yeah. So like you mentioned, the first edition, the overarching umbrella was environmental inquiry. And as I mentioned, underneath that, we had inquiry-based learning, experiential learning, integrated learning, and stewardship. And they were never meant to be hierarchical, Mm -hmm. but the way that we presented it kind of made it seem like they were. Um, And so we wanted to try to make the four branch framework or pedagogy focus more on a holistic model by presenting it in a more circular way. So, and also representing indigenous perspectives in doing so. Um, And so we, from the area that we're coming from is predominantly Anishinaabe. And so you can see inquiry and engagement starts in the East Mm. in uh, this particular model. And then we move clockwise through the branches of natural curiosity, as well as the indigenous lenses on each of those branches. And hopefully just by presenting it in that way, there is more of an understanding that they are an integral part of the whole piece. And that yes, we've broken them apart to try to find more clarity and to support educators in seeing that, but then knowing that they all come back together to, to make a whole. Yeah, and another one of the big changes was just the naming of the fourth branch. It's stewardship in the first edition, and it's moving towards sustainability in the second edition. And you already mentioned about a hierarchical structure of how the branches were arranged in the first edition. How does the discussion of hierarchy fit in with the switch from stewardship to moving towards sustainability? Mm -hmm. I think for us as an organization and school, this is one of the biggest shifts in our thinking and understanding. Mm. Stewardship from a Western perspective can really imply a hierarchical relationship with the land. So it's sort of like, how do we act on the land? How do we fix it? How do we save it? And from reading Doug Anderson's writing, who's the Indigenous author of Natural Curiosity, the lenses on um, each of the four branches, he, he really talks about the importance of creating a reciprocal relationship with the natural world. So thinking not how we are separate from nature, but thinking how we are an integral part of it, but also thinking about our relationships within that. And so sometimes when we think about stewardship in education, there can be this focus on one-off acts of helping the earth. And we're not saying that those things shouldn't be done anymore. But we're challenging educators to think, how do you bring reciprocity to that? How do you say, you know, plant a tree, which is an incredible act of stewardship. But how do you think about creating a relationship with that tree? So how does your school, how do your students, how does the community? So that as we move into the future, we have to do less of that, right? Because we've formed a relationship with it and we understand the importance of it so that we have to ask ourselves less about how we protect the earth in the future versus how we actually give back to all that it gives to us. I love that example with the tree 
and I'll sort of put your question to you. And of course, it's an open-ended question with many possible answers, but how can you create a relationship with a tree? So maybe this is a project that your class undertakes, or maybe it's something like planting a pollinator garden. I'm thinking of typical activities on school property. So how can you make some of those relationships? Mm-hmm. Well, there are some stories, for example, Zoe's story in the back of Natural Curiosity is a great example of that, where she, with her classroom, goes out and spends time with a tree in the courtyard throughout the seasons. Yeah, I love that. You know, and actually looks at, looks deeply at what the tree looks like in each of those seasons and sketches about it and writes about it. And just even in that, in, in learning and acknowledging that the tree has something to teach us, I think is really powerful. And this honoring that we can spend time observing, learning, drawing, talking about uh, that tree. I think that's one great example of forming a relationship throughout a school year with a, even a single tree. Or, you know, uh, the senior kindergarten teacher at the lab school, Carol, she started going to a local park with her students every Monday afternoon for the whole afternoon. And I think one of the things that she did is each student sort of picked a tree that was calling to them in that park. And they formed a relationship over that school year with the tree. And they did all sorts of experiences. You know, they took yarn and they each measured, measured the tree. They drew the tree. They just sat and read under the tree. So that was another experience that just sort of popped into my mind about how we form relationships with trees. And you just stop a random person on the street. Everybody has a tree. In fact, that can be one of the most enjoyable story sharing activities is just going around in a circle and saying, tell us your tree story. And that's all you have to say, because people get very excited when they talk about the tree in their life. Yeah. And we often use that as an experience to sort of share what we mean by the importance of bringing story, bringing community, bringing what we call heart-based learning to our classrooms, right? When you ask children to bring those kind of stories or families to bring those kind of stories to the learning, you're creating community and you're making it so much more engaging, just like, like you said. So we actually use that experience in a lot of our professional development to sort of share how meaningful it can be when you invite who people are, where they come from, um, and, you know, that tree that means something to them, their connection to place. When you bring that forward, it's really powerful. Oh, it certainly is. Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. Imagine the knowledge your tree could share, if only it could speak to you in your language. What do you think your tree can teach you? In the introduction to the second edition, there's a section about tips for non-Indigenous educators. I don't have any Indigenous heritage. I'm a settler. I'm a guest on Turtle Island. And I've felt the guilt and the sense of paralysis that many educators have when they learn more about the millennia-old history of Turtle Island as opposed to just the past 400 years from a Eurocentric perspective. How do we manage that guilt, that 
acknowledgement without it turning into paralysis? Yeah, that's a really important question and often one that, that gets brought up when working with educators and one that I think about a lot as a settler doing this work. Yeah. And of course, in learning the true horrible history of the genocide that has happened in our country, there is going to be this sense of what, like, how did I not know this? You hear that all the time. And acknowledging that you may need some time to unpack that yourself. And so you might need a, a bit of time that you are in a bit of paralysis. And I think spending a little bit of time there is okay. Um, but I'm hearing the words of an elder, Peter Schuler from the Mississaugas of the Credit. Uh, I heard him speak and he said, yeah, I get that. I get that, that you sort of like, what do I do? How do I make an impact? How do I process this new information? Um, how do I take responsibility? All those questions are important and it might cause you to not know what to do and not know how to act. But he said, you have to figure out how to take small steps out of that paralysis. Because if you don't, it becomes a cop-out. Yeah. Right? That's sort of his words. He said, okay, what? You don't have to take huge leaping bounds, right? I'm hearing also the words in my mind of Senator Murray Sinclair when he, he says it took us seven generations to get to this point, you know, seven generations went through residential school. And he says there aren't quick and easy answers, right? Educators, we are so guilty of being like, I want the answers. I want to know how to do this. Right. Give me, give me, give me, right? Give me, give me the ways to go about doing this. And so, yeah, we might need time to step back, to slow down, to, to process this. But I encourage everybody to take small steps forward. So maybe that involves just reading a book authored by an Indigenous author, you know, watching a webinar. But yeah, be kind with yourself and acknowledging this is new information, but don't make that be the reason why you don't move forward. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not an exercise in settler guilt, as I've you know, you see in certain newspapers with very provocative writers. I mean, you look at the language in Natural Curiosity 2nd Edition, and it's very explicit that it's not about that. And it's a discussion worth having if someone genuinely has that concern, because I think very quickly you can come to an understanding that this isn't the idea. There's no othering happening. This is just a simple acknowledgement of this is the history. Mm -hmm. It's what has happened. We can't change history, but we can affect how we use it to orient ourselves forward. And that leads to the concept of failing forward. And I hadn't seen that term until I read the second edition. You yourself in your life as an educator or otherwise, have you ever failed forward? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, I know. I, thinking about this, and it's important to share these experiences to know yeah. that that it's okay. And the one thing about sort of grounding ourselves in an inquiry approach is this idea that that we are learners, and we continue to be learners even though we are educators and teachers. And I think that is really powerful in this process of of being okay with failing forward. But when I started this job of natural curiosity, my very first day was a meeting with all of our Indigenous consultants. And I was tasked 
to document what everybody was saying. And, you know, I, there was so much that I did not know at that point. And even typing like indigenous, I think I was spelling or, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, how do I even spell indigenous right now? Yeah. Um, and people, you know, Anishinaabe, like, I don't know how to let alone spell it or pronounce it. You know, six years ago, I didn't know that whose territory I was on. Right. And Same. so, yeah, acknowledging that, learning that, being humble, that of what I don't know and what I still don't know is a huge part of failing forward. And then I think another thing, especially for natural curiosity in our, in our organization is balancing and struggling to find the balance between doing this work as a settler and taking responsibility for my role and our role in reconciliation, right? There yeah. is a quote from Sheila Watt Coultier, who's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, where she says, moving forward, it isn't Indigenous people's sole responsibility to teach everybody about what's happening and to try to get people's attitudes to change. It's everybody's responsibility. So we want to support educators with understanding why Indigenous perspectives are important to this work. But then we also are balancing this with what we hear from many Indigenous educators and people, nothing about us without us. Yeah. And Doug Anderson, who wrote Natural Curiosity, he doesn't have the time or capacity to, unfortunately, do a podcast with Green Teacher. Right. Right. So in this work, I am also attempting to relieve that burden that is being placed on Indigenous people right now to give settlers these answers. And so we're constantly trying to find how we bring Indigenous voice to the centre, to the conversation, while also doing the work as settlers to support educators in this understanding. So there is a lot of failing forward that is involved in that. And it's something that we continue to think about every day, continuing to try to bring an Indigenous voice without tokenizing. Yeah. That reminds me of a conversation I had with a, a gentleman who's part of the Tunaja Nation in the Columbia Basin. And he was talking about storytelling and how really as long as you give credit, you can tell stories from Indigenous nations, even if you are a settler, even if you are non-Indigenous stories by their very nature are acts of sharing and we share stories all the time and in an academic context it's essentially cite your sources and that's essentially what he was saying is cite your sources don't quote unquote plagiarize don't say this is my story say where it's from what was your relationship with the story and pass it on and to me that was such a great example of indigenous and non-indigenous people collaborating instead of this us versus them mentality, which of course is the pervasive discourse in just about all media these days. I won't get into that. I'll, I'll get on a rant. No one wants to hear that, but that really stuck with me and that what you were saying about, you know, Doug Anderson doesn't have time necessarily to come on a podcast, but you were able to be a credible voice to share a lot of the stories from people like Doug Anderson. And that's an example of what we can do in the path forward. Yeah, exactly. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and 
You know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoor.com learningstore.ca So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent or just a general nature geek there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there Ian? Definitely. Thanks Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favourite podcast app. Your tree invites inquiry which leads you to realizing that it's the convergence point of so many cycles. Water, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, to name just a few. Of course, there are 15 stories. The second half of both editions include educators' stories. And in the second edition, there are 15 stories, as you mentioned earlier, written by the educators themselves in their own voices. And I'm not going to ask you to pick your favorite story. That would be a very lazy interviewer question. But are there any stories that speak very directly to the world today? Yeah, I mean, they all have little nuggets that I think could could support yeah support these conversations. I think both a couple different answers, but both Mike and Murray's stories about talking about climate change with their grade five and six students. Both of them sort of talk about this idea of both them and their students wanting to go straight to solutions, Mm -hmm. like wanting to go straight to solving the problem, which we're all really guilty of doing. Even as educators, we we mentioned this already, going straight to wanting, what is the answer? I I want it now. Um, Or how do I do this? How do I solve the problem? And then both of them sort of said, like I had to like let go of control and we had to spend time with this learning to really come to the place where we could actually solve these problems. So yes, we have to act quickly on climate change. I'm not saying that, but uh, that we shouldn't be going right to solutions, but Mm -hmm. also honoring that in giving a bit of time, you're also allowing for everybody in that room to bring their questions forward, bring their perspectives forward, and honoring that when you come to a final solution um, in terms of, of creating or taking action. So I really appreciate that also in terms of slowing down a little bit taking time to listen, taking time to learn from everybody in the room is really important because there are so many voices that are missing right now from the climate change conversation. Yeah, like when I think of when I first learned about climate change and greenhouse gases and just the greenhouse effect, my concerns then are very different than they are now. And part of that is a function of knowing more about it. But just how this situation has unfolded has unveiled additional concerns. Like there wasn't a lot of talk of ocean acidification 
back in the 1990s. And there was certainly not talk about climate refugees and how that has resulted in a rise in extremism. The social aspects of it are major, major concerns that nobody was talking about or very few people were talking about 20, 30 years ago. So yeah, you do have to take that time, as you say, to let voices that maybe aren't at the table have a voice and hear what are the questions and the present concerns because they may very well be different from what they were 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago and they are probably different in some ways from the concerns that you have individually. Yeah. We'll finish off with a, a recent situation, experience, story within the last year where you saw clear evidence that embracing the shift just really clicked, either for yourself, for students, not necessarily even in a school setting. It just, you thought, yep, what we're doing, it's working. Hmm. It's hard to pick just one thing. And, you know, a lot of this year has been online. Yeah. And so that's been a bit of a silver lining for us in terms of being able to connect with and support a larger group of educators. But in doing so, it also provided this opportunity to hear the stories of educators that are doing this across Turtle Island, right? So often when we would do professional development, it would be in person. And so we couldn't necessarily travel up to the Yukon. That's not, you know, very environmentally great thing to do. So (laughs) in terms of providing PD online, I think that there's been so many stories where it's just so exciting to hear how this is possible in so many different contexts across Turtle Island, which is North America. And also acknowledging that it can look different depending on your local community, depending on the students that are in your classroom, depending on your either your treaty partner or your local Indigenous community. And I think that has been really powerful to remind ourselves that this is possible. And that this is important work, especially in this era of, you know, during COVID, that we need to be getting our students outside. And the anecdotal stories of when teachers do, how powerful that learning can be. And I think for me personally, um, I have an almost two-year-old and he is such a good reminder of slowing down of being highly observant and of just learning from the land. And, you know, that is a shift and a reminder for me of the importance of doing that even as an adult and allowing ourselves to do that even as adults. So for me, that's a sort of a recent reminder to just get out, observe, lick the dew off tulips as my two-year-old did one morning (laughs) yeah so I think that's more of a personal story of of a good reminder or a good focus on how when we shift to be more in and a part of nature how powerful that can be yeah in nature in the land not on the land exactly As you ponder the mechanics of each cycle involving your tree, your mind fills with questions and your curiosity blossoms. 
What do you think it would be like if you stayed with your tree until sundown? You're ready to find out. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. I promise we're almost done, but just before I let you go, I wanted to let you know about our virtual four-part professional development workshop, Solutions-Focused Climate Change Education Through Natural Curiosity's Four-Branch Framework. It's being co-presented by Green Teacher and Natural Curiosity, and Haley and I are the co-facilitators. Each two-hour session begins at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, You can register at greenteacher.com slash pd. We hope to see you there.